in Matthew chapter 15. Um, if you want to get turn into your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, turn into the sermon notes. If you don't have a sermon notes, I know you have it memorized. If you don't have it memorized, look on their neighbor's Bible or your iPhone or whatever else. And take a minute and read this at your table, but I don't want you to read it to yourself. Have somebody at your table read it to the table and the rest of you follow along. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Have somebody go ahead and read it out loud at your table. Okay, how many would say that this is a traditional Christmas passage? Okay, second question. When you read those verses or you heard them read, what thoughts came to your mind? Wow, for what reason? Okay. What else? Anybody else? What, what? Was there a disconnect? Was there a shock? This, this doesn't make sense. Justice? Okay. What else? Anybody else have a thought when you were reading it? So Kevin can go back. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. Have you ever felt like you were praying and you didn't hear a word? The part that really surprised me, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. For she is crying, crying out after us. Lots of compassion in this Christmas service. <laughs> One of the most common themes of Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels is he's trying to attempt to break the religion out of the dull, um, stagnant forms of human ritual and extra-biblical law and get people back into a right relationship with him. And we've seen how Christ criticized the Pharisees for their emphasis on just 
these rituals of hand washing and the right foods that you eat. Because the Pharisees had made this big deal out of his, this, you know, of them not washing properly or washing before a meal. Um, and Jesus says, you know, God is far less interested in people performing the right ritual or saying the right things as he is, more than he is, people seeking a right relationship. And then he goes on to say, what goes into the mouth doesn't defile you, but what comes out of your mouth shows that you already have a defiled heart. And so it's, and that becomes that, you know, again, that warning light on the dashboard that says something's out of control. And our words reveal that something's out of control, our sarcasm, our anger, our lack of forgiveness that comes out in these words just reveal that there's something wrong inside of us. So as we pick up the story in verse 21, and many scholars sort of believe that this is just an emphasis or a continuing on of you know, the emphasis that Jesus is trying to make about people having a right relationship. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Up to this point, Jesus' ministry has been entirely within the borders of Palestine. Um, and so he does something that's sort of totally unexpected. He travels northwest from the region um, around Galilee and crosses over the border into the land of ancient Phoenicia, which is now Lebanon, and goes to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And both of these cities are Gentile cities. They're not, they're not Jewish cities. Uh, these are now Gentile cities. He's completely moving into a whole new audience. And why did Jesus go there? You can read tons of reasons why. But the scripture doesn't tell you. Um, we find in Mark that he did go there and he went into a house and he didn't want anybody to know that he was there. So in Mark, it says, and from there... He arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So even though he didn't want anybody to know, as soon as he got there, the word got out that there's this healer, this miracle worker, who is in town. Um, and so a lot of people will make the assumption that one of the primary reasons that Jesus left that area is because, or left Galilee, is because he just wanted to get away with his disciples, continue to, to train them, continue to teach them. That, and he knew that none of the Jewish people were going to follow him into a Gentile city um, because they'd be unclean. And so he was pretty well you know, if I'm going to be away from all the crowds, this might be the place to go. Um, but, if, but, but then, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Matthew makes it really clear that this is a Canaanite woman. Mark tells us that she is a Syrophoenician woman a woman from around Tyre and Sidon. In other words, she's not a, only not a Jew, she's not only a Gentile, but she's a Canaanite 
Gentile. And the Canaanites and the Jews did not have a very good relationship over, throughout the history. Um, and so imagine the disciples or even any other Jew saying, Jesus is talking to not only a Gentile, but a Canaanite Gentile. And the Canaanites worshipped anything and everything. Um, but they didn't worship one holy God. And so you just have this going on and you can just imagine all the emotion. But she's desperate. Her daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. There's no human answer to what she's going on. She has probably been raised in all the pagan religions and has tried almost everything to get these pagan gods to help her daughter. Nothing has worked. And all of a sudden, somewhere, somehow, she has heard about this miracle worker. This man who has performed miracles all around Galilee. And now he's there for her. So she seeks help. She knows that Jesus is her only hope. The only hope for her daughter to be cured. Now, it's sort of interesting to see the contrasts in attitudes. This woman comes with an attitude which is noticeably different than all of the people in Galilee when Jesus came. She, he just got through feeding 5,000 people. And you see this in Matthew 14 and 15. But in that 5,000 after the feeding, you have no one in the crowd is reported to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Nobody comes up and says, Son of David, Lord. But this woman, this Canaanite Gentile woman from, from Tyre, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. In other words, she got it. Jesus just got through walking on water, feeding 5,000, doing all of these things, teaching, and the people just move on. And so she calls him son of David. She calls him Lord. Both of those terms would be acknowledging him to be the Messiah. So you see this great contrast between the Jewish multitudes who will not acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah and this Canaanite woman who does, who's openly professing that Jesus is to be the Lord, is the Lord, the son of David. It's also a great contrast of faith and of the Gentile woman and the unbelief of the Jewish. And it's also important to note, folks, that need is universal. And sometimes I think we just forget that. Hardik knows no national borders. Everyone does battle with evil. Everyone does battle with pain and loss. Sooner or later, all of us are driven to our knees. We have a plaque in our bathroom, and it's a quote by Abraham Lincoln that says, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction I have no other place to go. Um, and, you know, it's just, and that's what's happening here. This woman realizes that she has no other place to go 
but to Jesus. What has baffled people who read these verses isn't the fact that this woman came, or even that this woman called him Lord or Son of David, but what has baffled people is Jesus' response to her. And I think if we were honest, when we first read it, how could Jesus be so rude to not even acknowledge that this woman is talking to him or that she has a need? And then how could he say such harsh words as, you know, I didn't come for you. I just came for the, for the Israels, Israelites. And then she continues and then he says, you know what? It wouldn't be right for me to give to dogs the food that is meant for the children. Um... You know, you're thinking, wait a second, Jesus. You just raised people from the dead. You walked across the water. You, you fed 5,000. Come on. All you have to open is your mouth and it's done. And so that's, that's the part that we don't get. Because we have this thought about how Christ should always respond. And it was just like in the first song that we sang. Where, you know what? We're not God. And God has a plan that sometimes we don't understand. But it's interesting how when we don't understand how God's going to work, our first thought is there's something wrong with God. Never, there must be something wrong with my reasoning. And we start to question God. Instead of saying, okay, if God's doing that, he must have a plan. Because, you know... As we said before, God is not used to sending people away without meeting their need. So there must be something deeper that's going on here. And so you see that all of what's going on is a part of God's plan. And this exchange between Christ and the woman is eventually going to bless the woman. But more importantly, you know who it's really for? The disciples. The disciples. In verse 23, the disciples' response to this opportunity is, go away. This woman comes to them. She's begging. She's pleading. She's hurting. Her life is falling apart. Her daughter, whom she loves, is in serious and in grave condition. And the response of the disciples is, go away. Go away. Um... And not only, you know, Jesus, she's obnoxious. Just send her away. And that's not the first time we've seen the disciples do that. When they're exhausted, when they're on their own agenda, and there's a need, there's times when he says, just send them away, Jesus. Send them away. We, we can't feed them. Send them away. Have them go into town and buy some food and come back and we'll have a picnic. But send them away. Just leave us alone. And that happens on a regular basis. And it's interesting that how many times do we experience people who have in their own lives felt unimportant or unwanted or unheard or not listened to um, by Christians uh, felt marginalized um, and so they don't want Jesus just to ignore her they want her out of here um, now 
What's really interesting is that Jesus doesn't say anything to them. He doesn't say, guys, really? Are you ever going to get it? But instead, Jesus, instead of saying anything to them, talks to her. And by talking to her, he's immediately saying to the disciples, I'm not going to follow what you want me to do. You want me to send her away? I'm going to talk to her. You want me you know, to ignore her? I'm going to talk to her. So he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Um, so again, it doesn't sound real encouraging in verse 24. Um, when he's saying, woman, Canaanite woman, Gentile woman, I was sent as Israel's Messiah. And my task is to convert and minister to the ancient Hebrew people in order that they will accept me as their Messiah. Again, before we go on, there's some interesting contrasts here. Where would you have expected the confession that Jesus is Lord? Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the Messiah to come. Probably in Palestine, around Galilee, where, all, where Jesus is doing all these miracles. But where do you hear it? In the Gentile cities. You know, in the outcasts. And you hear it from a Canaanite woman. Uh, she may have been from the wrong side of the tracks, ethnically and religiously. But it's God who drew her to himself. And he's still doing that today, folks. Um, and notice also that we learn in this passage that Christ's people are often less gracious and compassionate than he is. God's people are often less compassionate and gracious than he is. And again, we all have known people who have been put off by Christians. They have been disappointed by Christians' lack of care and compassion. Um, and so here we have that opportunity for Christ to finally, you know, not finally, because he'll do it again and again and again, um, try to break through to the disciples. I take great delight, and maybe I shouldn't, but I take great delight in the failures of the disciples. Because it makes me feel more normal. Because when you take the disciples and we sort of model our life after the disciples, but there was like thousands of other Christians who were just normal people. And if the disciples can make those kind of mistakes, and immediately Jesus continues to guide, to teach, to lead, to forgive, to grow, to comfort, I take great and delight that, you know, he's doing the same with me. That even when I make these kind of mistakes, even when I don't show compassion when I should have shown compassion, even when I don't show love that I should have shown love, that God says, it's okay, Andy. I know you still don't get it, and you're still a work in progress, but at least you're allowing me to do the work. Um, so even the, the apostles stumbled in this area. Um, but even though they stumbled, it didn't make what Jesus said untrue. 
and it did not make Jesus untrue. And unfortunately, non-Christians will look at Christians and judge the truth of God's word by us. Um, and yet, that's, that's a poor thing to do to judge people by, you know, a few instead of judging it by the truth of God's word. But to those of us who are followers of Christ, we need to show the same compassion that Jesus showed even to those who are different than we are. We believers need to practice the same kind of grace and compassion as Jesus did. And the last lesson, all these trials that this woman is going through continue to show and reveal how we need to be less dependent upon the world's answers and get on our knees and get into the word and be more dependent upon God's answers. So now we move into the next section of this passage found in verses 25 through 27. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Christ has responded to this woman, ma'am, I haven't come for you. I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman is not deterred in the least by this apparent refusal of Jesus to listen to her. She continues to worship him. She continues to bow before him. She prostrates herself at his feet and she cries to him, asking him, help me, Lord, help me. A simple prayer of faith, a simple prayer of humility. And sometimes that simple prayer is the greatest prayer we can pray. When we really have no place else to go, we don't have to find these elaborate words to try to describe to God who we are, who he is, and what's going on. We sometimes just need to say, Lord, help me. Just help me. And she's not about to allow some kind of theological answer stop her from finding the fulfillment and the need that she needs in Christ. And she didn't care what Jesus said to her. Because she knew that without him, she had no hope. So she continues to pursue Jesus. She continues to pursue him. And again, Christ answers her. Notice his words. He says, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And the dog here isn't like in other places where it talks about wild dogs. This is like your family pet dog. Now, it's still a horrible insult, but at least the dog is in the house. You know, and he does get table scraps. But it's still you know, not a nice thing to say to somebody. In fact, if I said it at work, I'd be fired. Um, but she understood exactly the message of Jesus, a statement, and accepted it fully while pleading for his mercy. You hear that? She accepted it. She understood. She understood the theology behind it. She understood what it meant. She didn't get offended. She does not respond, how dare you call me a dog? She does not rage. She does not wax indignant. How dare you suggest that I'm not as important as Abraham or Abraham's offspring? How dare you say I'm not deserving of the blessings of Israel as the children of Abraham? She doesn't get angry. She doesn't fight back. She acknowledges what Jesus said. So you begin to see the perseverance of her faith. He throws up an obstacle. 
she continues to persevere. He throws up another obstacle, she continues to persevere. He throws up another obstacle, she continues to bow down and worship and persevere. How do we do that? Or as soon as we get that first obstacle, do we start complaining that God's not fair? Because she could have said that the first time. Well, that Jesus, he's rude. He wouldn't even talk to me. Second time, that Jesus, he's unfair. He's no good. Third time, she goes, I'm going to have nothing to do with Christianity because that Jesus, he just didn't care for me. He didn't listen to me. All he cares about are those Jews. He doesn't care about anybody else. Or she could continue to persevere and continue to trust. So her response is, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Now, we wouldn't see this, but in the actual Hebrew writing, this would almost be humorous. I mean, she's, he's giving her an argument. She goes, yeah, but you know what? Even the dogs get the crumbs. And so it's almost like there's no anger in this. It's just sort of like this back and forth that's, it's almost like a Jewish form of humor. So what do these words tell us about the woman? She is a person of hope. She is a person of hope. She dares to believe that Jesus will not reject the plea. She has a faith. But it is no longer a faith in these pagan gods. And, but it is a faith in the one true God. Lord, Son of David. The Messiah. She is a person of humility. And I think that this is really, really important. She dares to admit that she may be a little bit more than a puppy. In need of what only the master can give. She doesn't argue. She doesn't show her pride. She just has humility saying, it doesn't matter what I am. I know that the only way I'm going to get my needs met is through you. And probably, or perhaps, the quality of humility undergirds even the hope this woman has. Because it takes humility, folks. It takes true humility to have real hope in this world. It takes humility to have hope. Unless one is humble enough to conceive that there is a power at work in their life or in the world that is greater than their own power, than their own hope, or their own resources, it's impossible to have lasting hope. And we have a culture that has lost hope. Because we have a culture that tries to generate hope based on a bank account, based on skill, based on ability, based on their own abilities to solve their own problems. And it may give a momentary, you know, relief but real hope is based on a relationship with Christ that says I can't do this on my own everything else is a false hope so unless a person has an element of humility they will never have hope you can't have hope without humility acknowledging that Jesus is your answer try to imagine what a pleasant relief this, wo this woman must have been to Jesus. Try to imagine. 
She's got all these problems, but what a relief she is. He's just been dealing with Pharisees. He's been dealing with disciples that don't get it. He's been dealing with people who have rejected him. And now he's got this one lady who's got hope, humility, and a sense of humor and faith. I mean, she had to be like an absolute delight to be with at that point. So then Jesus says to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What an awesome statement. Not only does Jesus grant the woman's request, but he does so without ever needing to go back and see the daughter face to face. Her child was immediately healed. Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the joy of the mother when she went home and saw her child sitting in bed totally free? Totally free. Um, I can't imagine how happy she would have been. But there's one last thing we see in verse 28. Jesus pronounces a compliment to this woman that he never gave to any one of his disciples. Never once, and you can scan the Gospels, you can look all you want, but will you find him saying to his disciples, O men of Israel, your faith is great. But what does he say to the woman? Your faith is great. What did he say to the centurion when he healed the son? Your faith is great. Um, see, Christ pronounced that benediction upon them. The question is whether or not Christ is going to pronounce that benediction on us. You know, your faith is great. This woman would have been brought up in paganism. Yet we see a new faith in her, a faith that has brought her to Jesus, seeking his hope, seeking his mercy, seeking his healing, seeking his love, seeking his grace, seeking his forgiveness. Her faith was great. Where do we put our faith? Are we humble enough to have a hope that says it's more important than me? Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that you give us to worship you, to come together to experience the fullness of your love, the fullness of your grace, the fullness of your power. Now, Father, continue to minister to us and through us. Let us experience what it means to truly have faith in you, not in other things. To have that same faith of a Canaanite woman who knew that her needs were only going to be met in a relationship with you and that she persevered and by persevering showed her faith and by showing her faith your response. Yeah, Father, we praise you, we thank you, and we ask these things. And our Lord, Savior Jesus Christ, and all God's people said,